thank you for the enormous privilege of being together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who longs to reveal himself to us. You guide us. And your word is immensely helpful to us. Use this time to enlighten our thinking, to inform our lives, to inflame our hearts with praise and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's suppose that after a worship service... Yes? I'm so sorry. No, don't, don't, don't worry about it. During a worship service, you hear about a wonderful missions trip or mercy trip. Somebody makes an announcement. And you're like, wow, I think I want to do that. Is that the Lord's will for me? Now, is that the right question to ask? Is that a good question to ask? It is. We want to be in the Lord's will. Because He saved us, there's no greater pleasure than pleasing Him, serving Him, bringing Him honor, just be, being, in, 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 being in concert with what God is doing, no greater pleasure. So you hear about this opportunity and you're thinking, wow, I, you know, maybe there's a little warm fuzzy that happens in your heart. And you think, I think I want to do that. On the way out of church, you mention it to one of your friends who says, well, you need to wait and make sure this is the will of God. Look for a sign. Pray. Don't be too precipitous. You know, okay. And you're moving towards the door, and another friend, you tell them about, hey, I heard about this missions trip, what do you think? And this friend says, go for it. You're free in the Lord, right? If you heard about it and it's not sin, and you want to do it, go for it. And you have a little bit more relief. And you turn and What's that? That's your son. <laughs> <laughs> it could be your son. <laughs> and then uh, you run into a third person out in the parking lot. And you say, uh, I heard about this neat opportunity. I think I want to do it. What should I do? And he says, it's a good question. You need wisdom. There's probably some homework to do. And uh, some praying and thinking and reading and discussing and counseling. And so you go to your car thoroughly confused. Because you really receive three different types of guidance on how God leads us and how God guides us. So you're confused. That's why we need this lesson. Guidance is an issue that comes up along the path of life. We need to make decisions. How would you rate yourselves as decision makers just out of curiosity? Let's create a... Let's create a. Uh, Ten is superb decision makers. One is pretty poor. Just some of you call out a number and let's see if we can uh, take the temperature of the class on how you rate yourself as a decision maker. Three. Three? Okay. Good. Who, come on. So everybody's got to call out a number. Everybody has to call out a number. Four. Four. What did I hear in the back? Seven, five. five. Everybody's got to call out a number. Sorry, ten. I knew it. Joe, what's the highest, what's the lowest? Five. 
Ten pi one is your stinky of decision making. I know. I'm gonna say ten. You're a ten? You're up there with you're up there with Frank. I'd say eight. Eight? Okay, good. Any others? Frank? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, what, what what are the issues in play in your thinking as you rate yourself as a decision maker? What are some of the issues in play, Joe? Well, the reason I picked a ten is because uh, the Lord can do it. So even if I choose the wrong road, he can make me end up in the right place. So my uh, my whole decision making is guided. It's a process. It's not it's not fixed in stone, so to speak. It's as the as the situation evolves, then uh, the guidance is still. So uh, first thing is, Lord, what would you have me do? All right. And either guide me this way or that. Way. All right. Good. So. Isn't there freedom starting with that question? I want what you want, Lord. That's what Joe's saying. Isn't that really the best and only place to start? I want what you want. And and not with what Joe is saying, and that is faith. God's sovereign. God's in control. I'm going to trust him. So that kind of ends the lesson. Let's go home. (laughs) No, wait, Joe. What are some of the other issues in play, though, that... Look, some of us get paralyzed with big decisions, some of us make bad decisions, some of us appear rash and reckless, some of us always decide selfishly, some of us are impetuous. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of different ways to go about it. What are some of the factors in play for you? I'm going to ask you to wait, Joe, and ask if anybody else can answer. Gail? Put us in this quadrant as decision makers. We, we 
um, uh, we, we could go to the Lord with, with all the faith that we had, but yet we can make a mistake in, in the in, I mean, in the decision. So fear of making a mistake? Uh, yeah, if, if not really, you know, understanding what the Lord is is really saying. I mean, I'm uh, I'm sure people, I'm sure I have done that, and many other people have have done. I mean, you know, I I had uh, a pastor and his wife once tell me that they prayed diligently about the school that their daughter would go to. And four or five years later, they said it was one of the worst decisions we ever made. Where they so, said where they where she went yeah, to school. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, you know, and they they went in faith. Yep. And they they read scripture and did everything, and still it was. Yeah. You know. So fear, right? Yeah. Um, Joe, hold on, man. I'm, let me just let me just move on. Andy. Um, even though God sovereign. Even though God's sovereign, a bad decision can hurt you. Yeah, I can get hurt by bad decisions. Okay. Lisa? And they can, decision can hurt other people. So I get slowed down. I'm sure everybody is going to be good with whatever. Okay, good. Sensitive to the impact of your decision making on others around you. That's a good thing. Should we be paralyzed by it? No, it's a factor to consider that shouldn't paralyze us. Andy then Dory. Some decisions are very uh, complicated, and you might even be, you might even wait. Okay, well, if we do this, it'll have this benefit, but then it'll have these other repercussions down the road, and we really don't know where that's going to go. There's just a lot of things, and uh, so. I'm getting repercussions. Good, Dory. Two weeks, and that is 
Somebody read it for us at the top of the handout. For a starting verse, somebody read it for us. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.9. Okay. So, I'm going to develop, a f most of us want formulas for things. So I'm going to develop a formula, and we're going to take time to tease it out and see if it's biblical. Here's the formula for decision making. Make plans wisely, according to God's precepts, check in your heart, and trust God. Okay. And this is straight from an uh, Old Testament scholar named Bruce Wolfke. He was one of my professors at Westminster Seminary. He's written a good little book called Decision, uh, Finding the Will of God, a Pagan Notion. Anybody read it? Bruce Wolfke's Finding the Will of God. So I'm, I'm borrowing, uh, I'm pretty much in that camp. I'm borrowing from him uh, because I think he's, he's done a very good biblical job with it. So this is what we want to unpack. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So first of all, let's take the Lord directs his steps phrase and ask the question, what is the will of God? Right? In our decision making, we want to be in God's will. We want God's, you're going to pray it this morning in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. You're going to pray that. In, after the prayer of invocation, we're going to pray that together. What are you asking? That God's purposes for you be fulfilled. That you be, your life be in concert with what God is doing on the earth. We don't want anything less than that, do we? So theologians distinguish between three senses in the will of God. First, the preceptive will of God. If you woke up this morning and said, what does the Lord want me to do today? What's a definitive, certain, sure answer to that question? What does he want you to do today? In the words of Jesus, he wants you to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor. There you go. You got the will of God. Because it's written. It's the precept. It's the statutes. It's the written, prescribed will of God. These are his commands. You can never hurt yourself obeying God. Never hurt your soul. And you'll never help yourself. You'll never help yourself disobeying God's command. And it takes great faith to believe that. What song is a lengthy, breathtaking meditation on the preceptive will of God? 119. Stanza after stanza after stanza of reflection on the beauty, the glory, the benefits of the Word of God. Breathtaking, Psalm 119. It kind of ruins your daily song reading thing because it's pretty long, you know. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is spectacular. And what the psalmist is reflecting on is the Word of God, the written Word of God. Paul gives two examples of this in 1 Thessalonians alone. I'm actually going to start preaching on 1 Thessalonians momentarily. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he says, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And it's in essence what Gail was saying a little bit earlier. Everything God is doing in our lives is to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so that's one of the questions that we ask as we think about our decisions is, how is this Lord making me more like Jesus? Is this decision going to be harming the name of Jesus? So, what's God's will for you? Your sanctification. And what is that? Give us a definition of sanctification. Growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, God conforming you to his image, putting off the defilements of sin, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, sanctification. Growth in grace. Becoming more and more like Jesus. That's God's will for you. There you go. What does that look like? The Bible tells us. 
Because God wants to sanctify you. And God is sanctifying you. So that isn't a mystery. Sanctification is battling sin. Sanctification is looking to Jesus. Sanctification is loving other people. Sanctification is growing and suffering. Sanctification is learning to pray. Sanctification is a whole lot of all, all that stuff. Okay? The other place in 1 Thessalonians, do I have it on the handout for you? I think it, yeah. yeah. Somebody read that for us from 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, thank you, Shirley. So what's Paul saying? Every day, every week, every month, what does God want you to do? Be thankful. Be thankful. And pray. Pray. Rejoice. And rejoice. There you go. That's the will of God. That's the that's a, um, the uh, prescribed will of God for you. That's, that's, what, uh, that's clearly what God wants us to do because it's written and it's ex- explicitly called the will of God. Any questions about that? The perceptive will of God? This is the place where we have our most sure standing because God's word is clear. Right? This is the will of God that you believe in the one whom he sent, Jesus said. Believe in Christ. Trust Christ. Okay, secondly, his desiderative will from the word desire. And by this theologians mean those things God says he desires, but nonetheless does not bring to pass. Yesterday, did God desire that you not sin? Of course. Did you sin? Of course. So God apparently desired something he nonetheless did not bring to pass. That means it's his fault that you sinned? No. No. Who's responsible for your sin? Really? You are. Could God have stopped you from sinning? Being yeah, so yeah. proud, being so whatever. Yes. So obviously there are things God desires he nonetheless does not bring to pass. Ezekiel 33.11. Somebody read that for us. Nonetheless, the wicked die. They die exactly the moment God prescribed for them to die. They are wicked through whose fault? Who, through whose fault? God's or theirs? Could they become righteous and chosen of God? By God doing what? Calling them effectually by His Spirit and creating faith in their hearts, just as He did for us. And that's, we're no different than these people. That would be us, but the saving grace of God. Right? It should melt us, it should humble us, it should fill us with confidence and praise and radical other-centeredness. That that's what the doctrine of election should how about uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4? Read that for us. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What a thank you, Frank. What does that tell you about God? Is he pleased that people hate him and die in unbelief? Yeah. What does he want? According to the verse. All men to be saved. That they be saved. If he wanted it, then why aren't they saved? First of all, it's unbelief in their heart. God's fault or theirs? Theirs. Could God do something about that unbelief? Yes. Absolutely. He's the only one who can do anything about unbelief. He's the one that takes it away. He's the one that gives us a new heart. He's the one that circumcises our heart. He's the one that causes us to be born again. Nonetheless, and this is a verse Arminians used to say, you see... God wants everybody saved, and uh, so he's, you know, he's not sovereign in election. He can't do it because they're not letting him. 
And if that's the case, that means human beings are what? More powerful than God. And is that right? That is not right. Joe? Uh, I think this would support the idea that God's not looking for a result. He's looking for a response. We can't save ourselves. That's the result. So what is he looking for if not result? He's looking for a response. A response according to the knowledge of truth, which is, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Amen. We see this uh, powerful image of Jesus weeping over apostate Jerusalem in the Gospels. Just weeping over her unbelief, her hatred of him, her uh, making uh, man's laws into God's law. Just all kinds of things that Jesus loathed. Right? Was he angry in the temple? You made my father's house, as it should be a house of prayer, you made it a den of thief. He was angry. Um... Could God have brought about the wholesale conversion of Jerusalem? Yes. Without a doubt. Look, Nineveh, the whole city of Nineveh, hundreds of thousands of pagans were converted through Jonah's preaching, even though he didn't want them to be converted. (laughs) Therefore, it doesn't depend on the preacher. Thank God. (laughs) But God could have brought a wholesale revival to Jerusalem. He did not. I mean, largely Jerusalem was apostate. And just to make sure they got the message in 70 A.D., Titus destroyed the temple. I'm done with this. I'm done with this. Anyway. Um, so but so you, there's an example of Jesus. Could Jesus have brought about the complete faith of virtually every person living in Jesus? Yes. He did not. Whose fault is their unbelief? Theirs or God's? Theirs. Theirs. Mm-hmm. Who's the only person that could do anything about their unbelief? God. Nonetheless, Jesus speaks over that unbelief. His desiderative will. There are things God desires he apparently does not bring to pass. See his decretive will. And here we mean the decrees of God. We understand those things God determined before time that would come to pass. He's the Lord of history. Everything that comes to pass is decreed by God. True or false? True. If it came to pass, God willed it. Without himself being the author of evil and sin. This is a mystery. All along in the class, I've been saying, unbelief is not God's fault, it's human beings' fault. And actually, a very astute human being could say, it's actually not, not my fault, I'm born with unbelief in my heart, it's somebody else's. Whose? Adam's. Somebody would be right if they said that, wouldn't they? And if they want to, you know, trying to get themselves off the hook for the culpability of their unbelief, what would you say to them? Granted, you are born dead in your sins because you're born in solidarity with Adam, but... All creation. What's that? All creation proclaims the God who is. Tell them to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. God is offering himself right. So the doctrine of total depravity is not in contradiction with the doctrine of the free offer of the gospel. I mean, you will have some wise, wisecrackers sometimes try to talk you out of their need, that, like they're off the hook, that they're sinners, because this is Adam's fault. And in a sense, they're right. It is Adam's fault. But would you have done any differently than Adam in the garden? If you say yes, you're saying God made a bad choice choosing Adam to represent you. And he didn't. And there's a parallel between God's choice of Adam to represent us where he failed 
and God electing who to represent us in spite of our failures. Jesus, Jesus the second Adam. Joe? And in Galatians 5, 1, it says, uh, Jesus said, I speak for freedom's sake. So we're free from Satan's power. Free to respond. Our response is our choice, because we have that freedom. We do. So that's, that, that seems to be the tension. We have the freedom to respond now. How we respond is our choice. So this is one of the ways to help understand what J.I. Packer calls in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God and Antimony. And that is two truths that the Bible asserts that look to us like they can't possibly be both true at the same time. God is absolutely sovereign over everything and human beings are absolutely responsible for what they do. The Bible asserts both. They're impossible for us in our finite minds to bring together. But when it comes to human responsibility, human beings have liberty, they're free, as Joe was saying, to do what they do. They're at liberty to make choices, but they only choose according to their desire. And therefore, though we're at liberty, say, to choose God, we lack the ability to do so because the desire is absent. So people, I've had lots of discussions with people about free will. Right? I'm a Calvinist. Do I believe in free will? Well, it depends on what you mean. You've got to define your terms. If you mean human beings, that God is up here, his hands are tied, this is one view of salvation, God's hands are tied, and we're drowning like this, and God says, I'm here to save you, I'm here to save you, but it's up to you to do it. I can't force you to do this. It's up to you. Ultimately, salvation rests with the will of man. If that's what they mean by free will, I categorically and emphatically deny that as biblical. If you mean human beings are created with God, they're at liberty to make choices, yes, human beings are free, moral, responsible agents. The Bible asserts that. But the reason none of us on our own without a convenient work of grace will ever come to the knowledge of salvation or ever move towards God is we, we lack the ability because the desire is absent. And this is Martin Luther and the bondage of the will and Jonathan Edwards after him. Okay, Sort of the basics of reformed uh, theology, doctrine of man, doctrine of salvation. Joe? In Romans 7, Paul says he has the desire, but he doesn't have the ability. So although we have the freedom of choice to respond scripturally, that is not efficacious for success. The efficaciousness for success is when the Lord brings about that success. So I might have the desire to keep the commands of Scripture. I don't have the ability. But God's not asking for result. He's asking for a response. So if I respond in that way, uh, with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and my strength, the Lord is faithful. So one of the beauties of being in union with Christ is he changes your desires so that you want him and he sets you free to make these choices that bring that please him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God's decrees are those things he's determined beforehand that will come to pass and they're best understood by us looking forward or backwards. 
God's decrees. Who knows the decrees of God looking forward? Hi. How are you? Do you want to answer the question? No. Huh? <laughs> I want to ask the question. Sure. Back to the analogy of God's hands being like this. Yes. Can you complete the analogy then? What the hands are doing then in the other case? Like, if they're not tied and we're making decisions, I, I agree with that. So I think you kind of described it, but what then, how are they moving and what are they doing? Great. And to help us to, or to lead us to make the right choices or to choose us? Great. Great question. So let me use the um, lake analogy. I think it, it gives a really good answer to that question. There are basically four views of how people are saved. One is man is out there. We all acknowledge man has trouble, right? Man's out there thrashing, man and thrashing on the surface of the water. Uh, we decide we're in trouble. We swim to shore and save ourselves. What, what, document, what document in the 20th century said, man has no savior, he saves himself? The humanist manifesto. That's humanism. We save ourselves. Okay. Another view. Thrash on the surface of the water. God's on the shoreline. I'm here. We sort of see we need each other and meet each other halfway. I would call that some form of theological liberalism. Much closer to the biblical record. We're thrashing away on the surface of the water. In trouble. God comes out to save us. He reaches his hand down and says, now it's up to you. I'm waiting for you to take my hand and be saved. I won't force myself on you. It's entirely up to you. That's called Arminianism. Man makes the final choice. What's, what's the situation? Are we thrashing around on the surface of the lake? We are dead at the bottom, where it's dark and damp and cold. Salvation is God drains the lake, raises us up, breathes life into us, opens our eyes, shows us Jesus, and we decide we want Jesus because the Spirit of God has put that desire in us. That's salvation. That's sovereign grace, as it were. That's election and predestination. That's not preaching the gospel. The gospel is, Jesus Christ came for sinners. Are you a sinner? Call on his name, and he will save you. The, the doctrines are related, but they're not the same. Let me draw you another picture. First of all, did I answer your question? Salvation is... The last picture is... The doctrines are the same. You talk about the last two that you described? No, they're very different. One man's in control of salvation, the other God is. One man gets the glory for salvation, right? Don't I get the glory if I reach up and grab his hand? Don't I have something to boast about? Look, I made a decision for Jesus and you didn't. Look, most Arminians wouldn't put it that way, but I think that's the logical result of Arminianism. Man has a reason to boast because you made a good decision. And the Bible says, no one's going to boast before God. All the glory is going to go to God. So the one is Arminianism. God doesn't force himself on us. His hands are tied. He's waiting for us to decide. The other is we, have, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of faith. He opens our eyes. He brings us to himself and enables us to believe. So, here you. Sorry? Thank you. Here's the doctrine of election. And it's given in scripture to answer what question? Why did you become a Christian? What's the answer? God did it. I was dead in sin, blind. He brought me to life. The doctrine of election has nothing to do 
with anyone else in your life. So you often have people say, well, what about Uncle Joe and Aunt Susie? How do I know whether or not elect? Don't worry about that. That's up to God. Election is given for you. It's answering the question, why did I become a Christian? God did this. The doctrine of the gospel is the only thing you want to use to relate to anybody else in the world. And that's answering the question, how does anybody become a Christian? Answer, they call on the name of Jesus and he'll save them. They call on the name of Jesus. That's the gospel. Christ died for sinners. Do you know you're a sinner? Yes. He'll save you. Call on his name. That's the doctrine of the gospel. It answers the question, how does anybody become a Christian? And the fact that Jesus sends, in the, sends us into all the world, the world answers the question, who can become a Christian? Answer, Jew and Gentile, anybody. The gospel's for the whole world. Does that make sense? So the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of evangelism, and the doctrine of election are all related, but they're answering three different questions. The first is just for you. Why did I become a Christian? Okay. The second, and the only place Paul bleeds this into this is in Romans 9, 10, and 11, when he's looking at uh, everywhere he goes, Israel is supposed to be believing in Jesus, and they're not, and he's deeply troubled by it, so troubled he says, I wish I was going to hell and they were being saved, and he means it. And so he answers the question why apparently the chosen people aren't believing, he answers the question there in Romans 9, 10, and 11, basically saying the true remnant will always be saved. But anyway, so let me make sure, Lisa, I've answered your question. No, I'm okay. Okay, good. You had, you had said Arminianism is closer to the biblical account. Closer than liberal, liberal view where I'm here, God's here, we sort of meet each other. Much closer to the biblical account is we're out... It isn't the biblical account, but it's much closer. Sorry if that was confusing. We're thrashing around on the surface of the water. God provides Jesus as the way of salvation, right? Arminians have Jesus, right? As it were, he reaches down his hand. But the truth is we're dead at the bottom of the line. You, you started off, though, saying that we had choice. So I'm assuming, I, I don't want to keep dragging it out, so I don't want to keep That's talking. okay. You started out saying we have choice. So it sounds like you're, you're talking about salvation choice as opposed to other choices in life. They're different. They are. Okay. Yeah. So when you were saying we have a choice, God's not just standing here with his arms closed and, and he's he's working with us. You weren't talking about salvation. You were talking about... Well, forgive me if I forget exactly what context I was in when I was saying that. Yeah. Human beings are free moral agents. Right. They make choices. Those choices are significant. They always choose in accordance with their desires. You never choose contrary to your desires. And because we don't have the desire for God in us, we'll never choose for God. And even God is sovereign over those choices, is he not? That's the whole point of the decrees of God. He's sovereign over all the choices of human beings. Thank God. Satan's not in control of this world. God is. Have I confused you? Okay. Joe? Uh, one thing that was missing out of the uh, example was the, uh, a, person doesn't have, a dead person doesn't have freedom. <clears throat> they're free to choose according to their nature. They are free moral agents. They're free to choose according to their nature. And they will only choose according to their nature. Accepted. Okay. So, then now the issue is, uh, because I've accepted, is that going to make it efficacious? No. We are, Paul says, we, he has the desire, he doesn't have the ability. So even though I want to obey God's command, I've made the choice to. I find that I fall short almost every time. It's the look.
save me, deliver me, rescue me, enable me to serve you without fear in your presence in holiness and righteousness all my day. So my desire to be non-stop, but it's not efficacious, but where the Lord wants us to bring sins to my desire to make me helpless, so that in Galatians uh, 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 5.17, the flesh and the spirit work, so that we don't do what we want to do. So, if that's the case, my desire is not efficacious, but the Lord is faithful in that, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. If what's impossible for man is possible with God. So when the success comes, there's a humility with that because I knew I didn't bring it about. So that is that that's the tension that's there. There's a freedom, but not an ability, apart from Christ. So if I have any success as a Christian, growing more like Christ, it's not because I've done a good job. It's because the Lord is gracious, Amen. faithful, merciful, loving, and desires this for me. Good. Amen. So where, where are the decrees of God, which are hidden from us, the decrees of God are hidden from us, they are worked out in human history through God's acts of providence. That's the doctrine of providence. God, it comes from the Greek, pro, before the day, uh, excuse me, Latin, Latin. God sees beforehand what's going to happen, and he brings those things to pass according to his will for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. The doctrine of providence. And we read God's providence best, not looking forward, but like Hebrew sentences, Hebrew is read backwards. So we said, okay, that was God's providence. Is it God's providence that tomorrow you're going to get to work on time? I don't know. Because providence aren't read looking forward. They're read looking backwards. Okay? I've got some verses that, that give us our assurances that God will accomplish his plans and purposes in human affairs. On the handout, let's just read through them and it may conclude our time. What time do you have? It's your five minutes. Yeah. I have five minutes left? Okay, let's just choose one, somebody, read it, and we'll just go down this list. Starting with God reigns. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. His sovereignty rules over all. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can warn off his hand and say to him, What have you done? The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. I, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. His mercies are all over all his works. But it's also personal. He performs what is appointed for me. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. 
In him we also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a wonderful promise, yes. Here's how I illustrate, and I think I've illustrated this once before in a sermon here at Wallace, and that is when we were little at the beach with the kids, it was really fun and special to find sand dollars. We don't find any sand dollars anymore at the Outer Banks, maybe little pieces, but there was a time when we found sand dollars more often than not, and it was a big deal for the kids. So we would, you know, I'm tall, I'm walking with my little girl along the water's edge, and she's doing this, and I'm looking ahead, and I see a sand dollar, and I, what do I do? I make sure I direct her hand so she finds it. And she gets the pleasure, Daddy, I found it. Yes, you did, dear. Because Daddy saw ahead and made sure it happened. That, that's providence. So we rest in that. We trust that. It gives us confidence. Um, and uh, we rejoice in that. So any, obviously we're going to take two weeks to do guidance. And then we'll thank you human life the following on the 20th. Any other comments, questions, concerns? Good, let's pray. In your good and wonderful providence, Lord, you've ordained that we have this time together. Take and use your word to comfort us, to encourage us, to give our souls rest in your sovereign purposes. We pray for the grace to make decisions wisely, as as we'll learn next week. Uh, With faith, you give us so much data here in these verses. How could we question that you are sovereign and uh, will fulfill your purposes. So cause our lives to come under the beauty of that, the care of that. And may we respond in this next hour with deep, heartfelt worship. May our worship together, every element, may it uh, be a stunning change in our souls to see Christ, to adore him, to rest in him, and then to leave this place zealous to make him known in word and deed. May we do that, Lord, making you known. We pray this precious church would grow with those who are getting to know Jesus, grow with those that we are befriending and bringing here. Thank you for these dear saints, for their lives, their faith. They are so precious to you. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Pray for Michael. He is taking...